and welcome to episode 14 of the Gig Stories podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm wondering who I'm speaking to because, listener, he's never that posh. I don't know. I know your kid's in pain with your hello and welcome. It seems novel, doesn't it? For some reason, it seems like we haven't spoken for ages. I know. Did I put on my phone voice there? You absolutely put on your phone. I mean, normally, I can't understand you in real life. You know, that harsh Scottish egg. Scottish, Scotch egg. That Scotch, Scotch egg. egg. Wow. Is that Scotch egg in your mouth? Yeah. Wow. Sorry, let me finish. <laughs> no, normally oh. I sound like some kind of Peterhead trollerman. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I went all posh there. Um, I'm going to roll I, with it. That's fine. I reckon this intro will win us a British podcast award. Just, just on its own. Just this intro. Yeah. Nailed yeah. on. Well, nothing else is. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why, listener, but it seems like uh, it's been a while since we've spoken to you. And Chris and I uh, personally have both been actually working. Check us out. Um, out doing our day jobs and working in TV and photography. And, and it's great. And I feel like, you know, we've missed you. But we hope you enjoyed that last episode because Johnny Kelsey is an absolute legends and we told you you would come away from that episode feeling uplifted and that sounds so trite but honestly i just smiled for ages uh, after that episode and guess what i smiled for ages after recording the interview that we are bringing you today how beautiful was it chris it's another one that's kind of good for the soul i think this one mm. um uh, yeah and we were quite nervous beforehand because it was most of the the most of the people that we've interviewed so far we've known beforehand or at least one of us has known known them um but this was just a kind of oh, let's see if he'll come on um because he seems like a nice chap and and he went yeah cool yeah and um but we we were both kind of going, oh no this is this is weird this is the, weird. the truth is we became delirious it was so funny because we were both so nervous. I mean, I genuinely, I, I was starstruck. You know, this is Nick Hayward. And it, we were waiting and waiting, and that made it worse. And We were and whipping each other up. It was, was... it was, yeah, it was hilarious. And do you know what? We had no need for nerves, because as you'll hear, what a beautiful man, so well-spoken and so passionate loves loves to talk and that is not a backhanded compliment it was just great loves to talk and had some has some wonderful anecdotes and insights and you know i just what a i fell in love with him i'll be honest well we were on that zoom call i think it's the longest zoom call i've ever been on we were on for about two hours so i managed to edit it down to just was it just under an hour and a half and i couldn't really get much more chopped off really because it's it's all really great Um, how many how many toilet breaks did we have um we just we just had the one i think it was just the one but again like with gaz whelan's episodes 
all three of us went at the same time into <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> our respective <laughs> toilets. And, um, but yeah, it was great. And I, I managed, managed to, to edit it down to about an hour and a half. But trust me, you know, if you can't do an hour and a half, because, you know, an hour and a half dog walk is quite a long dog walk. Um, so if you want to do it in two chunks, I think we decided to put it out as one rather than as in, in part one and part two. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, you know, you know, listen to half of it one day and half of it the next. Exactly. And enjoy. You will. I, I think you'll, um, despite our dulcet tones, I think you will just uh, love listening to uh, Nick, who's just so self-effacing, just, oh. Is, is great uh anyway before we go into that um chris has sort of witnessed some live music haven't you at the the manchester jazz festival i'm still yeah. yet to go and witness some live music tell yeah. me a bit more what you've been doing was that it's not just been for work or has it just been for work you've been getting a bit of both in well manchester jazz festival was just for um fun because i like a bit of jazz Yes, it does. We know this. Oh, yeah. Um, But I was photographing on Monday at um, Stoller Hall, which wasn't part of the the jazz festival, but that was an amazing sax player called Soweto Kinch, um, who, well, just just Google him and watch some videos of Soweto Kinch. I first saw Soweto Kinch play about 15 years ago at Manchester Academy, have you ever had a beer called Brahma? B R A H M A. Um, I don't really care if I get that spelling right because I don't really want them to sponsor us because it's horrible stuff. Oh, it's, yeah, it's really, it's not, not, not they, my bag. If they do want to sponsor us, uh, oh yes, we but just be. send money, not beer. <laughs> um, but the, the, so they put on this this massive free gig at the academy. And it was um, Sao George, this Brazilian singer-songwriter. And he, I think the previous year, had provided most of the soundtrack to a fantastic uh, Wes Anderson film, The Life Aquatic. And he had, Oh, yes. Yeah, so he had, he had done loads of Bowie covers. And so, um, so he, grew, he grew up in the favelas of, um, of was it Rio? I can't, I can't remember. Anyway, um, he he was he was amazing, but Soweto Kinch was on that bill, and um, so that was fifteen years ago. So I photographed him at the Stora Hall on Monday, which was grand, absolutely brilliant. It was just a forty-five minute lunchtime concert, and there are a few more lunchtime concerts going on at Stora Hall every Monday. So it's best to um, check out that website and the yard as well. So the the lunchtime concerts are then repeated at a venue called The Yard, um, also in Manchester, in the evening. Um, so, yeah, definitely Fantastic. worth checking that out. So um, if you are Manchester-based, get on get on that. Get on it. So, it. Yeah, so there's live music happening, so you can get to it. It, it is out there. Hmm. I'm, I'm going to be honest, I've just had a chuckle. I've been covering a chuckle because when you, sp- when you mentioned that he had covered uh, Bowie songs mm-hmm. for whatever reason into my brain jumped a video that I will have to find a link for and you must all watch it and it is Sting at a ceremony watching a performer and I 
this is where it's a bit vague. It's just a it's a male guitarist, and I can't remember who is singing one of his songs, and I believe it's I believe it's fragile, and it is it's one of the most hilarious covers, and you should see Sting's face throughout it. It is so so funny. It actually makes me cry laughing. Is he a bit and, cross? Oh, he's just so confused and like what but he's obviously aware that he's being watched so he's trying to hide this sort of hmm um oh and if any of you out there have anything similar where you've got videos of covers that you just think are awful or things like that they're just bad please i love stuff like that i can't get enough of it so if you put so, that on the uh, on our twitter account we'll not we'll not pop it on the the episode page but we'll bob it on the oh, on yes the, on the twitter put it account. on the twitter uh, i will i will tweet it out because honestly it's just the funniest video it makes me cry anyway that's enough of me chatting what the listener wants is nick haywood so yeah. strap in or jump under the duvet put your headphones on and prepare for the beautiful tones of Nick Hayward. Nick Hayward, everyone. Woohoo! Yes, it's the Gig Stories podcast. And listeners, this is a big one. So big, I, I haven't stopped smiling all day. So big that Chris has had his first out of lockdown haircut, especially for today. <laughs> yeah, it's been so long since I had a haircut. This one actually hurt. It was sore. It was really painful. Joining us live from his home in Tampa, we have the wonderful Nick Hayward. Nick, how are you doing? Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. So uh, I've got to ask you, Nick, which... Um, exact fountain of youth have you been drinking from <laughs> thank you very much that's a huge compliment there because if you'd have seen me 10 years ago i was pretty heavy you know pretty big uh, size wise and um on death's door you know i i got to 50 and everything hit all at once i must say I, my health really took a dive i was really surprised by it because I didn't live that unhealthily you know I, I was really partial to lentils and uh, <laughs> I, was, I was living well and I, I went down the gym not regularly but you know I'd, I'd done my bit in my 30s and so I thought I, was, I thought I was okay but actually it really hit home and um I got oh, no. all manner Chris, of is, Chris is panicking now Nick He's well, panicking. Overwhelm you, you know. You just don't. Know, you don't know. You know that little bit around your belly that you you think is okay. Yeah, but yeah. I, I I I didn't realise that lentils were like the the gateway pulse, um, <laughs> where you, it led on to stronger pulses. <laughs> well, I, I I didn't think about the power of lentils until I was up with such a, a re I mean massive wind. Uh, <laughs> and then the next day, it was the wind was gone, but I had this power, this supreme power for the whole day. I was like literally a balloon, you know, that had been let off. Like, I was wow. Going down the park, going like, 
wow, I feel amazing. What on earth could it have been? You know, I thought, was it that huge tummy last night, the bloatedness? And it probably was. So yeah. don't underestimate the lentil. I won't, I won't, I won't ever again. Oh, and, and, and on that note, let's just, let's just wrap up the podcast right there. Don't underestimate <laughs> the lentil. <laughs> very soon you know hopefully we won't be asking the question but how has how has the past year been for you nick is it has it been quiet have you felt creative or have you just been hiding away um well initially i i thought uh, i felt quite reflective and went straight to my computer got opened up logic and started you know singing and you know i wrote this song and i thought oh, i'm going to share this with people and this is, oh, this is great. And, I, this is, and then I, I, um, I realized the song was awful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was really literal, you know, like I'm here in a room and there's a songbird outside. It's like fascinating, Nick. That's really fair, you know, you, you know, you're in suburbia. You've even mentioned suburbia. You're in suburbia in a certain suburban street and there's a songbird outside and you're listening to it. Wow, how profound is that? <laughs> Did it feel like a, you know when you when you have a really great idea in a dream and you write it down just after you've woken up and then you go back to sleep and then look yeah. at it again and go what? exactly I've, I've just written imagine it is an, it is an, an idea and you have to work on it you know it's like it's like the first draft isn't it of anything you know yeah you think it's brilliant but it is brilliant but you've got to work on it you know um, I've done about thirty novels. You know, a first draft where you haven't, because you've got to that point where you just think everything you've done is great, but you haven't got the skill yet, the skill sets for actually completing things. You know, you've just got the ideas, you know, because we all got ideas to, you look at Harrods and you go, that's a great idea. I think I'll start one, I think I'll start one of those. You know, and then you get up the next day and you think, right, okay, um, how do you run your own store? <laughs> I've got the name. It's called Haywards. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that's the same with anything like that. But normally it's that thing of just start doing it like a podcast. You know, you just start, you just do it and one thing will lead to another. Anyway, this song, Songbirds, led to another song, which led to another song. Because, you know, I shared it with Patreons because I, I got a Patreon together straight away. Yes. I thought, Oh my God, uh, there's no live work. Oh dear, that means there's no money. Did you have a load of um, of gigs cancelled then? Yeah, yeah. In the States or back across here or both or? In the UK, because I mean, at, at the moment, um, I mean, I do play here, um, but it, yeah, as it was just cancelled everywhere, it's just like, oh, okay, yeah. Um, so there was just no funding immediately for sort of anything. You just had to batten down the hatches, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned the Patreon there, and I'd 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 written that down because I'd noticed that you'd started the Patreon, um, and that you've been writing music for that. I noticed you have done two or three of Tim Burgess's listening parties on Twitter, mm. and and they have literally been a savior for so many people. They are so popular; they have tens of thousands of people joining in. With, yeah. with, was that was that something fun? Did you enjoy doing that? Because I, I imagine it sort of connected you, you know, with your fans and uh, and people that you perhaps knew, like like Tim. It kind of reignites the love that you had of the work that you were doing at that particular time. Mm. 
like if you can imagine, you know, 1983, and I was doing that job there, and it, things have moved on so many, you know, years and years go by and years go by, and some so many things are cr connected to the experience that you had, and so you don't dwell on it. You don't dwell on much at all in, in those cases. So to suddenly dwell on it, so you go back and you listen to it and you hear it. Um, I mean, a lot of the time, I purposely don't listen to North America because it's so, it reminds me of when I had a fantastic budget and I had Jeff Emmerich to work with in Air yeah. Studios and, you know, on this huge Neve desk with Jeff, you know, which I, I couldn't believe it anyway, that, uh, you know, I was working with the guy that made Penny Lane, you know, and you're, you know, you're not going to the studio, you're going to the studio with the guy that made Penny Lane, you know, you turn <laughs> up every day, and everything you've done sounds absolutely mind-blowing. You know, I still can't believe I couldn't get Haircut 100, the band, to get into Jeff Emmerich. They were not having any of it. I just couldn't believe they were not the Beatles fans. I, I was this huge Beatles fan and I, you know, I just wanted to sound, well, actually I wanted to sound like um, Imperial Bedroom, Elvis Costello, because that's the album that Jeff had just recorded. Yes. Right. And it sounded so cinematic. It just sounded vast, like a vast landscape. Like, you know, the best landscape you'd ever seen painted. So yeah. I just thought, I want to sound like that. You know, could I, could I sound like that? How was it listening to those albums back then? Did you enjoy that experience? Oh, amazing. I, and having Pino on bass, you know, so I was listening back to certain songs where, you know, I was back where Pino was in the studio. Was that Pino Palladino? Yeah. Oh, so he's, he's a, um, a Cardiff boy like, like myself. He is, yeah. I mean, he is one of the best and still to this day is, is just one of the best. Yeah, so Pino on bass, Dave Mattox on drums. So this was, you know, a dream band. You know, you, you're just looking around and everything's wonderful. So, you know, it's all you have to do. Your job is come up with stuff for people to play to. And you, you do that because that's what comes naturally to, you know. So it's like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Before we, we before we go any further, I'm going to drag you back, kicking and screaming, to uh, growing up and wondering if there was music in your house when you were growing up, and if you if your parents were big gig goers, and um, what what was the what was the music like um, when you were when you were a kid? Um, music was uh, everywhere in our house. You know, my my father was a huge jazz, um, and you know. Stan Kenton live was always in the house, always being played. So it was just like there was a huge big band continually yeah. playing throughout the house. And uh, the first gig I went to was Ray Charles, Oscar Peterson and Count Basie, one, one bill, Hammersmith Odeon. You are kidding. Yeah, that was my first gig. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to drop my mic on your behalf. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought music was, you know. Yeah. It was supposed to be mum and dad, and mum couldn't go, and I went with dad. How old would you have been then, Nick? Do you remember? I'm, you know, I thought about this a lot. I thought I'm going to Google it and try and find out the exact gig the night it was. But I was, I was probably around ten or something like that. Wow. Yeah. So it was. Um... See, that's that's like going to your first your first football match, and it's a five-all draw. 
There you go. <laughs> All gigs are like this. Yeah, and uh, I, I'm trying. I'm always trying to remember who was who had played where. I think it was Ray Charles was on first. I think, and Count Basie was on last, and I think Oscar Peterson. But you know, it was just it was just one after the other of of, of brilliance. I, I remember just being mesmerised, but thinking, oh, okay, this is what music was. So it's starting off on quite a high. Do you remember other Because I suppose at that age, I think we have glimpses, memories. Is there remember from that night whether it was the, the sounds did it sound loud to you what what was the reaction of the people or smells or colors or things like that is that how you sort of remember things yeah it is i, I remember oscar peterson i you hear him louder than the piano because he kind of he kind of hums along so it was being picked up and i was here because we were right at the back i was hearing that really clearly so I remember thinking, that's that's interesting. And now, looking back, I've made connections with all these places. Like I'd, I'd gone to see um, Woody Herman at uh, Fairfield Halls in Croydon as well with my dad. Wow. And um, I remember being in these you know, plush seats. I remember them being plush. Everything was plush. <laughs> uh, going to see The Sound of Music as well. In you know, That was a plush seat and there was... I, I saw it as gold, you know, the railings were gold. Yes. And my, my mind, they were just solid gold. <laughs> um, so they were solid gold, red, you know, and curtains, these amazing curtains, and people that were brave enough to come out and do something amazing like that. Um, and then you, I, don't, I didn't think I was ever going to be on that stage at all. I wasn't thinking that at the time. I was just mesmerized being there, wide-eyed, seeing this stuff and, and actually at the time thinking how brave you, you know you know you do that thing where i could never do anything like that these are yeah. amazing um and then i played hamsterthodian and fairfoot halls since so i stood in that place looking out and yeah. uh that is beautiful that's, that's ama an amazing thing i sometimes pinch myself about that like have i have i already done that i became a musician, wow, I did that. Yes. Oh, that's pretty amazing. I wonder my parents were gobsmacked when when I was, I did it and you know, like they came to see me at Hammersmith Odeon and you know, were kind of so overwhelmed emotionally because you know, at the time I was thinking, ah, oh, you know, be cool, you know, because yeah. you're you know, you're filled with all that stuff at the time. But now I'm you know, they're not here on this planet. I'm looking back with these golden memories. And at the time I was full of all these dreams, wild dreams of to do this stuff. And, and now looking back and going, that's absolutely amazing. I'd, I'd love to write about, you know, cause when I, if, if you start to write about stuff, other things will pop out. All these unconscious, subconscious memories will come out. And I'll probably will remember the, the all the smells from that evening, you know, everything will, you know, the nipping off for a chalk ice. I'll probably remember exactly what chalk ice it was, you know. Yeah. The walls. So yeah. did you did you end up going to quite a lot of gigs with, with your parents then? Yeah, that they they were jazz goers and all through their lives they would I mean we still used to go to the Bull's Head in Barnes together to watch, you know, the Tony Lee trio and, and Bill Lesage. 
and um that's some i've n- i've never been to that jazz club but i know that it's is massively renowned i was at the the children's literature festival with a with a theater production a couple of years ago and and we saw the jazz well i i saw the jazz club and went well need to go there because that's been around for forever basically hasn't it but as long as ronnie scott's or yeah it has and you know when people are in jazz musicians are in town they pop down for a gig and they'll just sit in with the band so sometimes we're lucky enough to see all manner of brilliant musicians just pop up and get on the drums you know yeah uh, get on the mic and yeah so so what what i mean what a start what a start to gig life what then would you would you class as your first gig that you chose that nick was like i want to go and see this artist Mm. what was what can you remember what that would have been yeah that would have been across the road from fairford halls at the croydon greyhound and that's when punk kicked in and i used to go every week to see the bands so the first band i think the first one was talking heads um, and they were playing oh. with this, this little band called Dire Straits, supporting. And uh, Dire Straits was supporting Talking Heads. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They they all look, they they looked the same. I mean, Dire Straits then had t-shirts, sweaty t-shirts, and guitars up high, and they were just this like. Dun, 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 dun. Really nice, nicely. It was like I thought it was like the Rubenus of the bit, like Rubenus didn't mumbling Rubenus. Yeah, we liked all all these Berkeley Records bands and like the Feelies and stuff. I I liked bands because of glasses, shirts, you know, tiny little details that you notice that you picked up on. So that's why I went to see Talking Heads because I'd seen. Wow, they've got the the bass player plays a Fender Mustang, you know, and a Fred Perry. Well, I'm in love, you know. Who this? <laughs> and they've got songs about buildings and books and and what what is this? And it was it felt so creative because of what you've been used to as well. But it wasn't that dissimilar to, you know, listening sitting down and listening to Steely Dan and going, why? How on earth do they make this music? This is music from space people yeah. <laughs> that have been also joined with other space people like oscar peterson you know oh, how do they do that you know and you pick up a guitar which i've done and you do learning g you know playing g, <laughs> and you think, god you know you want to do so much but you just and then you get a band together and you play g for about an hour <laughs> you know, and the, with your tongue sticking out the side of your mouth as well. Kind of... Yeah, exactly. You know, you're really trying to be this stuff, but you just know how to stand there yeah. and kind of play G and go, you know, and my friend Rob Stroud, who was who I used to work with, we'd started a band together and we just used to stand in a room and do that for hours and hours and hours thinking, but you know, you just keep turning up. It's like the novel, you know, you just keep, turning up that's it and then one day you'll be going oh well um good evening sir paul so amazing <laughs> you could do this today yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, that what you've just said there prompts a thousand questions i've got so many questions to ask just from that the greyhound 
Can you quickly describe that as a venue? Because I can't get my head over the you saw talking head supported by Dire Straits. How big was this? Was this just a local pub? Um, it was like a village hall um, behind a pub, I think. It was like, I think it was the Greyhound pub and they had a hall attached to it. Because I, I, I saw lots of bands there beforehand, rock bands, um, like Queen. But they weren't Queen, but they just oh. sounded and looked like Queen. Right, and okay. then the first, and then somebody had just started booking punk bands in there. So I saw Talking Heads, Dire Straits, The Heartbreakers. They were brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Wow. Um, and then the, the one that really blew my mind was XTC, because it was right at the, right the beginning of their, you know, the punk career. Yeah. And, you know, they did science fiction. And they do that thing where they stop, you know, and they all start again. And it's just, I just, you know, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, Colin Muldoon, he was just, um, you know, he had a bigger bob. It was a huge bob with a really thick hair that came around and, you know, a bit, with a bit slightly longer. And, and even things like, I remember looking up and he had a cold sore and I thought, cool. <laughs> you know, I'll have to get one of those. I think I've, I've had one of those. Yeah. Oh, next time I get one, I'm going to, that's really cool. You know, you just, <laughs> it's that thing of, I'd never, ever seen anybody on top of the pots with a cold sore before, you know. Yeah. So it was like, the, he just seemed to just be um, so, you know. Yeah. Cold sores were very punk, very punk. Yeah, it was a bit, wasn't it? How many of you would have been in the, how big was this? Maybe a couple of hundreds? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that. Yeah. Not, it was, it was, um. Slightly bigger village hall. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, very simple layout. Very simple. You know, and there's never any big lights or anything. Well, the Boontown Rats bought big lights. Which, which of these musicians inspired, inspired you to start a band? Can you remember when you thought, that's what I want to do? Well, that, that ha happened a bit earlier than that, when yeah. my brother, he was brilliant guitarist and he was in bands and they used to be a bit like Dr. Feelgood. Um, wow. But they used to do actually, she does it right. That's the first time I heard the song. I didn't know Dr. Feelgood's version. So I didn't okay. know it with, with harmonica on it. Um, so I just to hear them do it and it's just brilliant. Uh, I used to, I was a big fan of my brother's band. I'd go and see them. And they left their equipment up during, cause it, you know, we, we lived in pubs. So they, they could leave their equipment in the pub upstairs. There was always a derelict room somewhere. And uh, I remember this particular time, it was where they shared the rehearsal space with two Alsatian dogs who just pooed everywhere. So in amongst the Alsatian poo and the equipment, I went on, I switched the equipment on and just uh, started to kind of mess around with the microphone. And uh, because punk was happening, you know, the first thing that came out, you know, and was uh, my mouth was just kind of Johnny Rotney sounding thing. But then it was seeing XTC and seeing how, how they encapsulated all the electricity, I think. Of, then coupled with the jam, I mean, I, I, that was unbelievable energy that I'd seen. I hadn't seen that kind of energy. That was pure power when I saw the jam. At, the Croydon Greyhounds. Um, wow. They were, they were, they were 
unbelievable. It was the energy that came off the stage, pure venom. It was like from Paul Weller as well. And, the, you know, you're being, you've got two snakes coming at you at once. You know, you've got Bruce Foxton as well. You're jumping around super high everywhere, running across the stage and Paul Weller just spitting out his lyrics about England and about things that were going on. You know, I've never, I've never seen anything like it. And, and Rick Buckler sitting on his stool like, like a, a bouncer, just like, you're not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> he's kind of like baking, isn't he? He's kind of baking and he's doing stuff and he's, you know, yeah, he's doing things. He's, yeah. And, did it uh, did it feel like something? Did you feel that you were part of something in that movement? Because this, everyone that I hear that was lucky enough to see the jam in the early days hmm. explains the experience in exactly the same way, which makes me have to believe that it was exactly that, that it was powerful, energetic. But it seemed like it was perhaps different. Did you feel that you were maybe part of a movement or that there was something yeah. going on? Absolutely, 100%. You know, when my, when my girlfriend left me for a punk guy, <laughs> I, I knew I was part of something and I didn't want, you know, I had no choice, but I was involved. I was involved in this thing that's going on. Things are seriously happening here. Yeah. Uh, and I don't like it. You know, you've got to up your game here. You, you know, you've got to get Bo going. Otherwise, you are going to be left out of it. You know, get rid of your hush puppies, Nick. You know, get, get Poe going. So, you know, I used to do things like um, take a day off and try and find the clash. I went to Camden and went looking on sort of bomb sites for them. Because I'd seen in this book, Caroline Kuhn, I think it was Caroline Kuhn, she wrote a book about punk, quite an early one. So I would be scouring through this just going like, okay, white t-shirt, looks a bit like James Dean. Okay, bit Marlon Brando. Right, I've got to get a white t-shirt. Where can I get a t-shirt? <laughs> Marks? Oh, surely not. There's, you know, it's going to be like, oh, and oh, there's another one. There's a string vest, and there's a, oh, and how's the hair going? And you know, and what's this bomb site they look like? This derelict land. I've got to. Where is it? They're not saying where it is. Camden, Camden, right? Okay, let's go there. So you, I went there, and I thought, when I see Bernie Rhodes, the manager, he's he's. What does he look like? He's kind of. I I, I thought they're all mythological. <laughs> you know. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was, everything was fascinating. I learned everything about what was going on because I, I was convinced that then when I started the band with Rob at, um, at work, that we, was gonna, we were gonna start a band and then probably next month, we were gonna be massive. You know, of course, that's how it happens. Match, obviously playing at Finsbury Park and yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's just going to happen. It's just going to happen. And uh, so I was, you know, walking around and uh, it was a time of Baker Street. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't get away from the Baker Street everywhere you went. You even had it in your head all the time. You know, it was a, it was the soundtrack was that sax. Uh, that, that music was playing around. If it, if it wasn't that, it was... It's a living thing. You know, this was, oh, yeah, yeah. That was really what was going on. There was no punk in the in the charts. I mean, yeah, so uh, the, the punk was literally in Wardour Street. I, I used to go to Sniffing Glue, the shop, and just look through all the stuff, finding out, you know, step forward records. I bought the Cortinas, Fascist Dictator, 
you know. Yes. Uh, I yes. played that over and over. I just thought that was absolutely brilliant. Yes. And I learned that. It's like, oh, God, yeah, yeah. I didn't know what a fascist was. I didn't know what a fascist was. I just, dictator. Yeah. Sounded good though. Sounded good. (laughs) (laughs) So, so what was what was your first gig then as a performer? Yeah, that was probably the big one. The proper gig was the Wellington Waterloo, Um, and at that particular time, the band. Because you know you got to. It's not like nowadays where you you get a a band name and you got to stick to it because you've got a website and everything else. you could change it pretty much five minutes before you went on stage <laughs> and you could, you could do that gig and then end and then never use that again. You know, you just call yourself anything. And we were rugby uh, that night because it's, with, it was the mod revival at the time, because by the time, it, you know, I'd taken, Rob and I had taken everything we knew up to that point. And actually Rob sent me, a recording of that gig at the at the Wellington Waterloo. So I've got it. I've listened to it and it's like, oh my God, wow. You know And was and, it good was it good? Did you did you enjoy listening to it? Yeah, really, really good, really tight. I mean, you know, some of the lyrics that I was singing about were you know, because I used to just make up stuff uh, all the time. That was how it developed into the nonsense of Haircut One Hundred because What I'd, during during a gig? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You'd be, I'd be improvising all the time. See, I'm not surprised by that, Alex. I, I mean, I, I, I've been watching some, some even not even live performances of you, but um, videos. And you're a cheeky so and so, Mister Hayward. Um, <laughs> there, there are a lot of sideways looks to the camera. There was always that, that, that feeling that, yeah, I know what I'm doing here. This, this is, this is crazy, and I'm, I'm loving this but it's it's a weird it's a weird sort of fearlessness but also nerves that you didn't know what you were doing so you i felt much uh much more comfortable having to make it up because recreating didn't seem to feel as as comfortable Uh, i think my, my brother and i you know families throw up opposites don't they they throw up I think it's probably the family unit. Like if we were wolves, you know, you'd get one wolf that was better at this and another that was better at that, you know, so that the family can help out on the farm or whatever it is. Um, And, you know, my brother and I, my brother uh, loves to get everything exactly right. And has, you know, that's why he had a tribute band because he loved that tribute to doing exactly that. Whereas I, I had that thing where I just couldn't learn so I made up stuff instead. Uh, I wanted to be him. He probably wanted to be me. I'm just, you know, we probably wanted yeah. to be each other. And that's a family, isn't it? That's what happened. Yeah. So I'd, I wanted to, I wanted to be able to learn stuff and do it exactly as is. Uh, but because I didn't have that ability to take in stuff, I would be just making it up. Like this conversation, it just feels a lot easier for it to not be scripted. Did, did that ever stop? Um, well, it's an interesting question because it does, once you do your first work, body of work, then it's like 
things have to change. You know, the press is on. You know, you've done that. And so you have to go out and be your own tribute band, if you like. Yes. Oh, interesting and point. Doing like the performance of it because, you know, it's just like if you're an improv. It's like when you look at Reggie Watts and you think, guy's got to be improvising the whole caboodle. Got <laughs> yeah. It's so funny, isn't it? It's so yeah, out. Absolutely. Everything's just off. But you don't know. And this is the whole point. But sometimes it's, he has to have that medium to do that, where you might get, you might get sort of 80% is great that night. Uh, I've improvised sets and, and stuff and had a, a rough idea of what I'm doing. But I do find, you know, writing on the spot as well. Like I'll do that at a gig. I'll just write, I'm gonna, just gonna write a song now. It's much, it relaxes me to do that, to just, re, just do it. Now, sometimes I've stood there and the song's been really good. And it's like, I can't remember it, but it's oh. pretty good. But sometimes it's not good. <laughs> that, in fact, it's embarrassing, but that's the part of creativity that's the wonder, isn't it? You have to go into, be vulnerable enough to be embarrassing, to get the other, the thing that is like, oh, wow, that's really good. But I wouldn't have got that had I stood in my own way. with Haircut 100 as opposed to your solo career did you feel that constrictive then did you feel being in a band you weren't able to do that you weren't able to you know perform like that and maybe sort of live on the edge or improvise so did you feel like no I've, I've got to just do this on my own or am I just seeing well, something not there it's actually it's actually nicer a lot easier and uh more creative to be in a band situation because you do your thing and somebody else does their, everybody does their thing. They've all got the ingredients and they bring the ingredients. Uh, whereas I find sometimes working with people that are musician musicians that aren't in a band situation, uh, they, they will come with a completely different you know, approach every time. Whereas a band member, you right. get, you get the idea, like if you've got a band member and you've got a bass line, that's what you're going to play every time. Yeah. You've got a conga player, you've got your part and it suits the song and you, you play it and it's like, and they'll bring all the other ingredients together and they just, they just work. That's the, that's the magic and the wonder of it. You know, I, you can see that when people get back together and they all play their ingredients, they're a bit astounded by, oh yeah, you just, it sounds, it sounds like us, doesn't it? It's a bit like, oh, well, of course it was. It's like <laughs> tomato soup, you know. If you get back and you put all the ingredients in, it, oh, it tastes exactly like it. So <laughs> it's actually really nice to be in that situation because in a band, you don't have to worry about other people's stuff. But actually, as a solo artist, you've got to be all. You've got to sort of manage everyone and everything and everybody's, you know, because sometimes I'm, I love... You've got to free reign yourself, so you might even come and do a different version of what you did last time. So, do you have a preference, or do you just appreciate both experiences? You appreciate being in the group, but you also appreciate. I appreciate. I appreciate both, but you know, I must say, there's something great about being in a band. You can see it with everyone. 
they love being in a band in a band and then the other stuff is the stuff that dismantles a band you know the the just like a any kind of relationship uh partnership yeah. anything that goes you know i mean you have to you see it in so many areas football teams you know stores harrods you know businesses <laughs> you know, every, everything that goes on it's just you know will it stay you know and you you only see that stuff as well when you learn and sometimes through living you know it's a process of doing isn't it that you go oh that's how you do it you know because at, at, at one point there was a, a moment when i just thought oh right okay so you sign to mute records that's what you do that's what you do. You, there's no other record company that you should sign to. Just go straight to Mute Records, do a 50-50 deal, and it'll just keep going. But you don't know that until, you know, at the time, you're just all like scurrying around, all doing your thing. Nobody knew that. I mean, I we used, to, we used to hang out, out with Depeche Mode, and, and they were yeah, sweet, sweet guys. Um, but they were bickering. But that bickering was really creative. You could tell that they were kind of really, they were really, it's creative bickering. You know, I, I find that bands that don't bicker are the ones that don't flicker. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> That's going to be the advert for this episode. In the early, the early 80s, kind of around about 82, 83, I felt like there was a real kind of split between the dark and the light. And the well, I mean, Depeche Mode is one one example. The Cure, early Cure, but I also felt like there was a, a lot of light there as well. I mean, considering that it was quite a dark time anyway, the Falklands War and and um, you know the Miners' Strike and all this kind of stuff. So Pelican West, just such a summary album, and um, I felt like you were kind of like sunshine, basically. And mm. um, did did you feel like there was pressure on you to? you know be like an antidote to some of the real gloom that was that was going on what what did you feel like your role in the musical landscape was at that time well it was what was happening it was a very naive uh, little wave that was coming along it was the same wave that that claire grogan was surfing you know she was on the, the surfboard next to us and then there was Bobby Bluebell, and there was a Bluebell surfing, and everybody was surfing in on a very naive wave. That hadn't been around. That wave wasn't naive when it was Echo and the Bunnymen, U2, Teardrop Explodes, Monochrome Set. You know, I'd, I'd lived through all these waves that were coming along. This wave was kind of, there was something happening. You know, the new romantic thing was evolving out of um, posture into naivety. It just was happening. Around, around about that end of 81, 82, there was a, just an injection of naivety. There just was. Yeah. And it, it didn't hang around too long. It, it, no. turned, like, it did turn into darkness. I, I do remember being making North of a Miracle and Depeche Mode were doing Master and Servant. And it's like, you know, it, ha it had only been a year before that it had been like, new life. You know, and bow ties and kind of, <laughs> you know, all I want to do is see you. Oh, you know, blessful songs, really loveliness. Uh, and then here we are with master and servant. So you're right, it was, and now I was in the studio doing my own form 
of melancholy, you know, and it was definitely not the sunshine percolated pop funk. It wasn't, it definitely wasn't that. No, no. You know, the, the period was starting to change, definitely, yeah. But it felt like it was needed. I mean, Bucks Fizz was another one as well, and I think Bucks Fizz can get a bit of a, a raw deal as kind of the Eurovision band, but they did some, some incredible pop pop records um, and I, I remember speaking to Andy Parisi who, who did a lot of drumming with, with Buck, Buck's Fizz not the first album but um, certainly after that and and I, I felt like there was a real need for that as well at that at that time not that it was kind of I mean maybe it was naive as, as you said but 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 also needed <laughs> well related to that then Chris uh, uh, and Nick what were the haircut 100 live gigs like what were the what were your audience like was did you see that there was an audience there that just wanted some fun they evolved um like at first it was just pure london you know we would play after the fire engines the fire engines would play at the embassy club one week and then we'd play there the next and you know i remember the sort of like lighting guy saying you know do you want dry ice you know that that kind of thing it's like no we're cool we're good you know um and it's that thing i've, I've got my polo boots ready um and i've got not, I, you know I'm, I'm ready to sort of like uh, go on stage and um everything's nice and clear we've got phil ready he's going to play some sax up in on the veranda um yeah it's 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 going to be different and then you'd get written about and Susie from Susie and the Banshees and the Banshees were because our manager was going out with Susie they were listening to our demos so that was our audience it was more you know we're playing in London cool band and then it that evolved as soon as and then then enemies sort of that and then as soon as there was this moment where Depeche Mode had done it they led the way they were the sort of pioneers they'd gone and done it wasn't smash hits, they wasn't around yet. So looking. Oh boy, yeah, and looking and other things. And we were, went to a meeting with a press agent, it was Judy, and she said, do you want to do these? And and I remember like looking and seeing um, Blondie and XTC in these magazines when I, as I grew up. You know, my, my girlfriend, Laura, would like have pictures of Deborah Harry on her wall and uh, you know and I thought oh you know it's a brilliant one of Annie Partridge and, and I thought well they did it so let's yeah let's let's do it and it was a definite turning point at that particular time we did we, we said we we're going to do those magazines so we did those pictures and then we went on top of the pops and then we we're playing Hickstead Cinderella's the next night after top of the pops and it was a complete change. The audience went um, went to the gig, and it was different. It, everything everything was different. It just it just got. Um, in what in what way in what way was it different? Um, younger, more whooping. Yeah. Younger, and then younger, and then when we did the the next tour, it was places like Apollo. Manchester, you know, and suddenly down the front, younger, and it's just happening. It's it's just happening. And then the sun on the mirror would do kind of haircut mania. 
which meant people then thought there was, and then the <laughs> yeah. You and, and, I, and I was thinking, well, this happened to the Beatles, you know, and then you think, oh, I better watch Help or Hard Day's Night, you know, I've never seen these films. <laughs> um, and then you watch them and you think, oh, you know, and then you're in Liverpool and you're on the veranda and you go out and there's everybody from the gig outside. And yeah, you, you're living that thing. Then the next minute you go out of, you, I remember there was a time coming out and we went to get in the car and it wasn't a Ford Escort or normally the cars that we got into, it was a limousine. And, you know, you're sitting in a limousine just thinking, I've seen this in, uh, oh my God, oh no. I remember going to see Stardust, that would be the band Stardust. I'm really, really wanting this. And this has happened. And why can't I have um, a villa in Spain next? And then be just quiet. <laughs> And it's going to be the end of the film, and I'm going to have you know be drugged out of my head like David Essex was. Well, is that how you <laughs> is that how you felt at the time? Were you able to kind of appreciate that this was something that you had kind of aimed for and longed for for years, and then you know you finally had it? Was it did it feel like an out of body experience, or or were you able to go, ah, oh, excellent job done, nice one? Um, well. Looking, looking back at it now, no, I, I definitely wasn't able to, I don't, I think self-worth, which I didn't then have a, an idea about then, I didn't have an idea about self-worth at all. It's funny, I've just not long watched um, Tina Turner, um, and yeah. that's, that's fasc a fascinating story of self-worth, um, because here is somebody that, you know, really didn't come from a, amazing beginnings uh, at all. And at one point she must have thought, I've got to run my own life now. And, you know, nobody's going to be falling at my feet. I've got to go out there and lead this now. And I've got to go out there and feel worthy enough to, to attract the best manager in the world. And she did. And to attract the best record company. And, you know, this, is her, this was her wild dream to be bigger than the Rolling Stones, which she achieved. In, in Europe, you know, yeah. I mean, the documentary is amazing because it's so, at a time now, she's just looking back on her story and her career and uh, it's lovely. It's like, a, like a, a documentary without any kind of, none of the ego, none of the urgency of the period at all. It's just like reflective totally. But you recognize something in that though, did you? In that documentary? Yeah, the self-worth because I did not feel that at all. Um, I mean, they call it imposter syndrome, don't they? They've got a name for it now. But I just remember at the time thinking, uh, what? You know, really kind of, oh, God, I, you know, not calling people back when they call you because you just felt like, no, they didn't really want to. Did, they, did, did that really happen? Did that affect you performing live then, Nick? Did you, did you start feeling nervous? Did you get nerves? Did things change for you mentally or physically performing live when, when it sort of turned like that? Um, yeah, because, you know, you have the confidence of first. Yeah, there's a, there is a, every band will say this, you know, there's a confidence that you have. You know, XTC would have had it, Squeeze would have had it. You can see it in the early performances with bands. Yeah swagger that they have you know look at the jam they had it oozing out this camaraderie this thing this unstoppable machine it's wonderful you know um you do have that and 
I don't know if it's, I find it amazing when I, when I look at people that have sustained that. It's ast astonishing, you know, and, and uh, it's got to be down to things, just simple things like not feeling worthy. I mean, it's a cliche, but it just is that, you know, individuals in it, people having self-sabotage issues, but it coming out as pushing people away, you know, somebody thinking, you know, I, I'm not, I don't feel worthy enough for this, you know, and just, it, this is not in my conditioning. They don't think it because otherwise they do something about it. I, I don't want to be your therapist here, Nick, but have you found your self-worth? Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm enough. Brilliant. Just as I am, you know, even if I, you know, never earn anything ever, ever again or do anything ever again, um, I feel enough because it's no good doing anything, you know, because all along in my career, I never really felt like worthy or enough. It's such a surprise to hear that such a surprise to hear that and by that i don't mean saying it's wrong but you know as as fans of your music and i'm sure chris and i both are thinking but this is this is nick haywood this is haircut 100 this is nick haywood's solo career this is a, a, an amazing musician so i'm i'm glad that you reached that somewhere in life and, and realized that, that self-worth but also from a creative point of view that <laughs> you are fantastic in fact this is going to take me on too we've never done this on the podcast before we never announce um in advance uh, or when we're recording interviews who our guests is going to be but uh, we, we posted and said look we're we're speaking with nick what questions would you ask and it was so funny because they're our peers and your peers and it was so funny because it, it's like everyone just turned into a child again and 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 I just want you to know just how much love there is out there for Nick Hayward. It was just so nice. Now, shall I, um, before we get to the serious questions, yeah. shall I get the, uh, a couple of them out of the way? And um, so, I just uh, Kirsty and Roz, they they both asked um, Nick Hayward, how did you cope with being so beautiful? <laughs> well, um, and it's funny. <laughs> And because uh, <laughs> these are the questions we were getting, Nick. These are actual real questions. Well, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not going to let him answer that, Chris. No, I'm, no, I'm, it, I'm, I'm, I, I said I would ask. It's it. funny because, um, and you know, I, I, um, I remember being. Oh, this, this is this is so such a strange thing because you know I've. Sarah, I've talked to, my love of my life, we've talked about this stuff because, you know, she didn't know me then, but, you know, a picture would pop up of, say, like, I mean, when I was 21 or something, and, you know, a time when you, you know, when everything's happening, you know, when your hair's happening, everything's happening, and you've gone out, and somebody's taken a really great picture of you, and that's not really how you look, but you look, you know, and you look at the, you kind of remember this yeah. picture, and you you look and you go, what a hunk, you know, and what, you know, you just think, wow. And then you remember back to that time when you were riddled with insecurity. You know, the whole time I, was yeah, probably, yeah. I, I know I was thinking, oh God, I wish I was just taller. I wish I had a bigger penis. Um, I wish, I wish it would stay harder longer. I wish my hair was blonder. <laughs> I wish my skin wouldn't come out in spots. 
I would tell us more talented. Why have I not written a song as good as yesterday? Um, why am I not as big as Duran Duran? Why has George Michael got such a beautiful voice and mine sounds like the cat? <laughs> you know, all this stuff, you know, comparison with others and the hell that you put yourself through on a regular basis. And yet here, many years later, you just look back and you go, oh my God, what, what earth was I thinking? I should have been enjoying being, <laughs> you know, him. I should have enjoyed being him, that guy there, who was just enough. But of course, I wasn't enough. I wasn't enough at all. I was riddled with insecurity and doubt. And, um, and it, was, it was covered up by, by bravado, by ego or, you know, smoking or whatever it was, or trying to be clever, of course. you know, trying to be, but it was, you know, really the truth, um, you know, and also living through the whole kind of guilt of trying to be in a relationship, but not, not actually being very good at it. And then, you know, that kind of stuff. And there's plenty of people around to make you feel really bad about yourself. Really guilty. You know, I could not do relationships. It was a really hard thing to do. You know, because at some point, you know that scene in About a Boy with Hugh Grant, you know, where at some point yes. you're going to get it. You know, you haven't been <laughs> a man, have you? You know, and you're emasculated completely. You know, and you, it's all you've done is thought, I'm not into you that much. But I can't say, you know, I'll just be with you for 20 years. <laughs> Instead, you know, well, that kind of stuff, anything but just face up to just, you know, I, that, that stuff. And men feel it, women feel it, people feel it, but they just haven't got the tools of communication. And you're probably never gonna get it. Some people never get the tools of communication and then just die, you know, not there. And, and I mean, look at people, they're riddled with it. Look at, look at George, Michael. I mean, millions and millions of pounds and, and the success and a voice from heaven didn't mean yeah. that he could get past 50 and go into living nice. elder years and just relax and enjoy mm. all that wonderful life and all the all of us who just think george you're amazing you're just amazing guy look at you you know i don't give a flying fuck what you look like you're brilliant <laughs> in every way look at you know and for him just exactly. to sort of like go wake up and go look in the mirror and go i love you george you know i'm just gonna you know i've done my bit i've done enough i've you know Kellis whisper is just a a moment, you know, you couldn't make that moment again, ever, because it was that moment. It was that moment to come up with that song in that time, for it to record it the way it was, for it to sound like it was, for everything to be around like it was, you know, everything. And, and just for him to sort of like go, I totally accept that I'm older now, you know, but it just looked like he was struggling in, inwardly. He felt everything so deeply. Uh, and just couldn't just actually just do the basics, which is just live, you know. You, you've answered that question in the most wonderful way. Yeah, <laughs> you thank really... you very much, because that, that was a really flippant question. It was a really flippant question, but it's, it was a lovely answer. Thank you. I'm just going to have one more flippant question, um, <laughs> but, but it's, it's from my wife. 
but, yeah, I'm not sure I should be asking this really. Um, but she says, um, "Will so this is this is my wife talking, and she's saying, will you marry me in 1982?'" Uh-huh. Um, so. Again, I, 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 I'm I'm going to translate that. I think it's a rhetorical question. I mean, well, um, I tell you one thing: she's so lucky that she didn't marry me. You wouldn't believe how crap I would have been. I, mean, <laughs> I thought you were going to say she was so so lucky that she married me. Yeah. Oh, Nick. But this is it. You know, this is the the loveliness of it. I don't know. It's a fascinating, fascinating subject. Um, why I didn't want to be in a relationship with Andy Partridge or the people that I idolised, and I, I, you know, you have to get into the mind of a woman. I think a girl or that that time because they have that thing of wanting to be with somebody, you know, in a in a sort of unrealistic way. But it is actually very real, and I've I've talked to women now, you know. 55 still you know that is the thing and i find that absolutely fascinating i mean it's it's a, it's it's a book probably on on it because <laughs> if you went into it deeply it, it's a fascinating subject uh, it's a subject that i can't see because you know i do remember idolizing musicians and stuff and people that did things and, and things but uh, i never looked at uh, an actress say or somebody that was uh, attractive and just thought, I actually want to, to be with them. I remember once a, a guy saying, a therapist, uh, somebody was in therapy and they said um, that their, their partner was kind of, they thought their partner was looking at everybody and just didn't, you know, didn't want to be with them. They just wanted to be with everybody else. And the, the therapist said, well, do they actually want to be with them? Um, because if they do, then that's a problem. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're going against the whole of the universe there, you know, and that's that. That comes back to that uh, that brilliant line from uh, from uh, Graham Coxon of Blur, when he he, was, he went to therapy and he he said uh, the therapist said to him, uh, "If you think you're so in control, go down to the coast and try and stop the tide coming in," you know, and. Uh, that's it. Well, you know, some going against the whole of the universe. It's not good. It's better to go with it. You know. Oh man, I I love you, Nick Hayward. <laughs> I, I want to marry you. <laughs> I've enjoyed this this podcast uh, very much, guys. You are great. You know. Yeah. I gonna... Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Rob Lacey, Rob Lacey says Pelican West is still to this day the ultimate summer album. And he wants to know what your favourite song from that album is and why. Oh, it kind of changes. I've always had a soft spot for Milk Beyond, but, um, okay. but all, all of them really equally. I mean, I was listening to, I actually played Marine Boy the other day because I was going to, I was trying to recall the brilliant piano solo. And uh, yeah. <laughs> it was done by my mate Michael, who, and I'd forgotten that, you know, he, he came into the studio. I said, Michael, you play piano, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Nobody would believe me that a mate from, uh, you know, from the sort of like pub could play piano. And he came in and he pretty much did that solo in, in Marine Boy. It's like that Oscar Peterson. It really is. It's so intri- intricately woven. It's like seeing yeah. an amazing piece of lace 
done. It's like, wow. Um, yeah, it's like a song. You've got this really innocent song with a pair of suspenders in the middle. Like, Where did they come from? And uh, I just remember him doing it. And, and that was that. It was never really talked about much. And it wasn't asked to join the band. Everybody else was asked to join the band. But like, oh, what? <laughs> yeah, you, became, you went from three to eight in, in a very yeah, quick... Yeah, that's the power of not being able to say no. Uh, you know, everybody, we, 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 we did have the brass section join for a while. You know, it was that thing of everybody was pretty much in it. And it, that's that was the trouble with Hector 100. There was no, there was nobody to say no. You know, it was a, just a, a massive free for all. You know, it was the magical mystery tour. If you like, everybody was on the coach that nobody knew that it was here. And you know, and it ended in this hotel with everybody around a big table. Everybody thinking they were kind of in the band. I'm the manager. Oh no, I'm the manager. Well, actually, I'm the manager. <laughs> you know, the record company said they were the manager and. What is it kind of consortium of management? And then it's like, well, actually, I'm the manager's manager, you know, and I'm the lawyer. I'm I'm the lawyer. And there was all these people all around this big table in the in the hotel. Some, you know, we Blair and I laugh our heads off about the story of Haircut and Hundred because if it was captured on film, it would be a comedy. It really would. <laughs> that needs to happen. I'm making a note. That needs to happen. Because you've got to laugh about it because everything that could go wrong went wrong, but. That's the, that was the kind of, it had to happen in a way. Every, everything had to happen the way it did. Helen Ellis wants to know, of, of the artists and peers around you in the 80s, who did you most admire and listen to as well? Um, well, I was, uh, I was a bit frustrated in the 80s because I was a Smiths fan, and there, but there was no one else really liked them. <laughs> uh, and it got less and less... <laughs> You know, if you can imagine everything, you know, getting higher, people were starting to go, <laughs> you know, production. You know, if you can imagine hair bands were coming out in America, it was Casey Kasem, it was all, you know, the, the, just to be more kind of big production and do that stuff. And, and I was still a Smiths fan, you know, I still was, I was still that Amazing. thing of, but you know, just, get a three three five and to come up with a really good riff and then sing some wacky stuff over it i like that and so, but you know and so it was just got got really hard to like the stuff that you like but i always had everything from behind everything that had kind of i'd learned so so i would always you know i would always listen to that's going fire and know that you know there's there's nothing more mesmerizing than september you know in yeah. you know, wizards <laughs> making this stuff. Um, but actually, where I was at that particular time, I remember, you know. Uh, but but I did have people that I admired. I mean, I I admired George Michael. I think, I think he was uh, a natural, naturally gifted. You know, somebody to be able to um, take and make a song. He really did make a song. You know, like like I, I make a song. Like I sit and do stuff. You know, you you do it and you play the bass and you play the guitar and you come up with a thing and that's what he he do you know there are people that are just you know sit down and makes pop songs and uh, mm. but he really did it absolutely he was able to sing it as well you know like i don't think i think many people could sing something like faith or wake me up before you go go and it would, wouldn't be as commercial as when he does it he made a song like kate winslet <laughs> you know makes really you know all, quite ordinary dialogue 
<laughs> makes it brilliant in, in the same yeah. way. And I think there are there's some artists like that, that, I mean, look at Tina Turner, what she did with What's Love Got To Do With It? I mean, through the film that, that was a demo, wasn't it? For Bucks Fizz. And it did sound twee. Yes. You know, perfectly twee for them, but you know, not even kind of like, not even as good a stand, good standard for what they were doing. So she, obviously she was like, oh God, what can I do with it? this song? You joking. And I don't think she was a big fan of it, but look what she did with it, you know. Yeah. I love the fact that um, Tina Turner's cropped up in a couple of episodes now, a couple of interviews that we've, we've yes. done for this pod, um, Tina Turner's popped up, and it was unexpected the first time, um, Mr. Gaz Whelan, the um, Happy Mondays drummer, um, saying best live performance wow. he's seen, wow. Tina Turner. Um, so and that leads me on to, sorry, I've, I've just jumped ahead because there was one more mm. question. Yeah, and this is one, this is one that everyone needs to know. It is true. Yeah, Claire Holcomb says, "Who had the best haircut, you or Kershaw?" Which Nick? Hayward or Kershaw? I think Nick had the highest. He had more lift. You know, he was more like, uh, he had more he lift. Was a, yeah, wave from Hawaii, <laughs> and I was more Cornwall. I think. You know? <laughs> yeah, he was Waikiki, and you were Nuki. He had, a, he, had a, he had a little bit of, uh, I don't know, something going on at the back as well. He had a, a, a wave that would follow. It was like lifted here. Yeah. Oh, he had the mullet, didn't he? He had, he had the mullet thing going. Yeah. It, nobody can ever find a picture of me unless it's been fiddled with. I've never had a mullet. Brilliant. I had one last week before I had this haircut. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. No, the thing I was going to say was Gaz Whelan was talking about um, doing top of the pops at uh i don't know 1987 something like that and he was there with the stone roses and so he and ian brown saw tina turner she was doing a recording that was wasn't in the actual studio and they said hello and all that kind of stuff i'm just wondering um if you had experienced some kind of random encounters in the top of the pops studio um it always it always fascinates me that all these um charting actors you know bands are kind of smashed together in <laughs> yeah. this random nature as to whether they're a climber or yeah if you're a climber then you, you're in and so yeah was it was it a bit of an odd experience going on top of the box yeah it, it was it was um you, you have to get over the fact that it it, it wasn't as you see as you, you watched over the years you know it's nothing like that it's you know you go into it and it's just an, it's an empty big aircraft hangar style you know, room uh, with, with stages and a few people that they make to look like lots of people. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I remember thinking, being on one stage and the stage opposite Culture Club were getting ready and, uh, you know, George was sort of waving like this, which was, which was really, really nice. And, um, and I remember thinking, ah, that's the, they sent their demo uh, to support us really early on. And it, I remember making that sort of like connection there. It, was, it wasn't until they, they did that. Um, did they actually end up supporting you? They were going to, but we went, uh, we chose a band called Weapon of Peace uh, instead, a sort of reggae band. Um, and I, I still don't know why that was. I've, I mean, <laughs> it had something to do, something to do with this. There was, 
There's underground dodginess that leaves another part of the haircut on Andrew's story that's... That's being saved to the book, I think. Yeah, yeah, it? definitely. There's <laughs> stuff that was going on behind the scenes. Quick fire round, yes. So, your favourite voice or vocalist live? Favourite vocalist live? Wow. You can only choose one. Favourite vocalist? Do you know who I'm absolutely in awe of as a vocalist? Jamie Cullum. Oh, Chris I just him. think he's an absolute natural genius singer live. Do, do, I follow him on Instagram yeah. and wow. You know, he just, there's no yeah. chance of him ever, even slightly, going sharp or flat. He just seems to be naturally tuned nope. in. You know, there's no nerves going on. There's just something where he just becomes the song when he's singing it. Even if he's doing a little improv or he's making a song, or he's just written a song and he says, you know, guys, I'm just going to play this song. And he's, you can tell that he's reading it off his book and he's going, going, you say you want to leave. And it's like, Oh my God, it's just, wow, and the way he delivers it. So, Jamie Cullen. Yeah. Jamie Cullen, okay. What's your favourite gig as a performer, or, or at least one gig, where you just thought that that was, everything about that was brilliant. The crowd were brilliant. You felt that you, you were perfect performance. What was your favourite um, gig? Prince at Hot Farm in Kent. Yeah. Oh, you were there, yeah. you were there watching? Oh, you mean watching gig? I'm, I want both. But you've, you've told us watching. It seems like everyone, but Chris and I, was at Hop Farm watching <laughs> Prince. I couldn't believe it was happening. He, he, he arrives on a helicopter. Um, the band arrive, and uh, they kind of got, come on stage, and they're sound checking. But it's just the most amazing sound check you've ever heard. <laughs> he's calling out key changes and time signature changes. So it's going from a kind of like, and then suddenly it's just and he's got dancers and people wriggling around on stage and prince is just playing a little solo here and a little bit of funk in here and then people have and then it'll just go it'll swing around do a time change like half time sped up and then it'll go into purple rain and he'll do a few bars of purple rain the crack place goes nuts and then he'll get off into another song it's in the middle of it. yeah he's swinging it around and it, you're standing there just going wow yeah you've got to be a certain character where well, you have to be prince to be able to pull that off in front of a massive festival audience what to pull off a, a sound check yeah. It's it's crazy, isn't it? Okay, now the favorite gig is you, you performing, where you just thought that was amazing. You came off stage and you were like, that was brilliant. Yeah, I've got there's so, so many gigs where I've just thought, uh, um, you know, um, little gigs where I've just walked off and thought, well, that was, I don't know, I'd like to do this for a living. You know, this <laughs> this is really, you know, I could actually do this. This is really good because it. It does feel like that when I go on stage sometimes, like you've, I've never done this before. I'm going to do it fresh. Because I have to remind myself before I sing Fantastic Day that I'm coming to this. Because if you start to meander off 
you've, you've lost it. You're singing automatically. And it's not going to sound like the first time you've done it. It's a bit like, you know, um, you know when Ed, Edward Elgar, you can hear him when he gets up at the Albert Hall and he's got to do pomp and circumstance and he says to the orchestra, play this like you've never heard it before. Because I, there's something that happens that makes one go off key and you can sing out of tune because you're not putting in the effort because you're just going through the motions. So you have to grab yeah. it, grab hold of the song consciously. That, that's the thing. So sometimes going on stage and doing that, and there have been, have been gigs, like there was one when I was, I think I was supporting Howard Jones at the O2 Indigo, and um, it wasn't billed or anything. Uh, Joe, who manages them, just said, oh, do you know, we pay you a bit. Do you want to come along and, and play and just bring the acoustic? And I was like, yeah, yeah, fine. So I turned up and just walked on stage and started, you know, just playing and singing, you know. And I love that feeling because that takes me right back to the Wellington Waterloo. They're like, who's, who's this guy? You know, and you stand and fall on the merit of what you're doing right there. Yeah. Now, Nick, I love what you just said, but I'm only going to say that I believe you sort of 50% because there's no way a Howard Jones audience <laughs> asked themselves, who's this fella? <laughs> 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 no, that's absolutely true. Well, you know, back to my being like five stone overweight, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe they, maybe they did. I was kind of suit and a waistcoat. I mean, I don't know what I was going for. The... So they all said, who's this Nick Haywood tribute? <laughs> um, I'm going to crack on with the next question, which is your worst ever gig. Oh, Let's no. not dwell on it too much, but worst ever gig. And, and you can do it as a punter or, or and or as a, a well, performer. I've definitely got that one. It was, at, it was Windsor Art Centre. Yeah, it was a, a Saturday night and I had no idea that it had been billed as Heck at 100 and a load of um, kind of hen nights had turned up. <gasps> you know, we were drinking at the bar and... No. You know, and I was, it wasn't, it was just, I just thought I'd go and do an acoustic gig. It didn't even, I didn't even think it was Saturday night. You know, I was like, it just, I didn't realise it was Saturday night. Um, so there was a kind of pressure to be the Saturday night turn, which is a different thing. I don't know. When, when you're on tour, you realise that there's Monday night gigs, there's Tuesday night gigs, you know, there's different flavour for every yes. show, but then there's a Saturday. And especially in anywhere in the UK, on a Saturday night, you know, it's a different thing. So I'd, I'd, um, I'd sat home beforehand working out all this stuff and I'd written this song called A Flower Came. And I thought, yeah, it's like I stand there and I kind of tinkle on my guitar a little bit. So it's like the growth of a flower. And then it starts to bloom. And I thought this is a really lovely way to start the set. Like, like the, you know, the birth of a seed of a beautiful flower, like a... You know, the Lotus Sutra. You know, this is amazing. So I walk on stage thinking, like, hello, ladies and gentlemen. And I look at the front row, who are a bit like this. And then I look, look up, and then there's a lot of, whoa, whoa, you know. It's nice, guys, for Love Plus One, a fantastic day, straight away. And so I started to sing, the flower came. And immediately I knew that this was not going to work it, it was going to be a struggle and then i it threw me and normally which i really enjoy which is just kind of talking to people and going with the you know just improvising just telling stories and stuff 
I, the first thing I think I came out with is, is look at the injustice of life that you can look, somebody can look like George Clooney and somebody <laughs> else can, you know, have cancer. And it's like, you know, the <laughs> silence, <laughs> the silence in the place. <laughs> And the evening <laughs> went like this, and it got well, worse, and I, it was my whole, it, everything. And I'd gone to have acupuncture beforehand because I thought, oh, I've seen that there was acupuncture around the corner, and I thought, well, actually, actually, that was one of my best favourite gigs. I'd, I had acupuncture before uh, a gig in Canterbury, years before. So I'd always thought, I'm going to have acupuncture again, you know, because that's the calmest I've ever been. <laughs> ever was was when I had the acupuncture, which was a girlfriend of mine had put it here in the third eye. So I'm on stage at the Canterbury Theatre and just on, hello, ladies and gentlemen, I love you. I love you. I've always loved you. I absolutely adore you. You know, and it was just like they all came out just like, wow, we feel loved. This is amazing. And. And then, so I thought I'd do that. So I went out on, in, you know, Saturday night in Windsor, having had acupuncture, but full acupuncture. So I was in a state of love and, you know, ready to sing my song about a flower. And it just went worse and worse. And then I had, I made two halves out of the evening. And I've got my friend Anthony and Richmond backstage ready to come on and help out and sing some lovely BVs and acoustic, and it's going to be an acoustic alchemy, lovely. And I went off, I said, okay, half time, and I went off and I, I said it, and, and Richmond, who hadn't been on stage with me before, and he was a sort of mate, so I said, oh, come and play. I said, he said, how, how was that, man? You look great out there. <laughs> Richmond. I'm giving it up. I'm throwing in a towel. I'm never doing this stuff. I hate this. This is, what am I doing? This is awful. I just never want to do, you know, the real crisis of, you know, that's it, that's it. And um, I actually did not do anything else for years, I think, after that was, wow. yeah, I got ill after that as well. That was, um, that was the beginning of when I was talking to you at the beginning of this about when I, you know, it, had, it was around, around the age of getting to late 40s, early 50s, early 50s and, and, you know, something oh, caught up with me. All the nerves of, of <laughs> grinning and bearing it of the years beforehand are just caught up at the Windsor Art Centre and just, you know, left me in a bloody mess, you know, hung one and quartered. Just the thought. I love thinking over stuff. And just the thought of you going through that for that Windsor gig and then walking out on stage, finding out it's Builder's Haircut 100 and you've got plumbing Hindu or Stag Do's out there. Oh, they my left gosh. Then, that they, is... just, they were just shouting for those songs. Those, I had those songs. I knew they were going to have to wait until the end. Um, now, now I would have just stopped and played those songs. Twice. But, you know, it's that thing of you, you play those songs to people and if they're acoustic and that's what it, it was. You know, it's like it's not going to have the, the other instruments on it. You do know that. It's not going to have the, you know, <laughs> and you feel really bad about that. You know, you know, the saxophone. Like, oh, sorry, but, you know, and they've just gone, listen, 
I don't know anything about you. Just bring those other instruments with you. Just, you know, what do you mean you haven't got them? You know, I played, <laughs> I played, <laughs> play, them. You. play them. And, uh, you, yeah, it's play that song. Covers bands make it work. Why can't you? <laughs> <laughs> Ed Sheeran plays lots of instruments at the same time. Yeah, he just presses a foot thing and off it goes. Come on. Come on, Nick, press the button. Why don't you have a foot thing? Where's your foot thing, Nick Hayward? Yeah, yeah it is a bit that, and you know, things like that do happen. You do think that, you know, especially that does pass through your mind when you're standing there and it's all falling apart. Oh, I, I just can't imagine my heartbreak. So we take you out of the quick fire round. And uh, a question that we do like to ask, and because you've mentioned venues as well, what is your favorite venue? What's the one venue that you just love going back to? Or do you have one? I do like the O2 Indigo. I must say, I do like that because it's been designed properly. Everything, you know, you can hear yourself. You don't have to have in-ears. The monitoring system is designed. Brilliant. Really? I've, I've not been. That's, that's, the, um, that's the second venue within the O2, obviously, in uh, in. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, being the, having an older brother um, and him always getting the chopper and I got the chipper. <laughs> I don't mind playing at the chipper of gigs while the chopper is, you know, the bigger venue is out there because I'm used to riding a chipper. So I, feel, <laughs> I feel good in a chipper situation. Um, that, that O2 is massive and just, for me, soulless. The, the huge thing. So well, I have to say the only the only time I've been there was to see Prince and it wasn't oh, it wasn't soulless then. It wasn't soulless then, no, no. of course it wasn't. You lucky little thing. <laughs> like have you ever mine is um a, a, a place in Cardiff, but up here in Manchester where I now live, the Apollo, Manchester Apollo. Have you played the Manchester Apollo? Yeah. Just I just love and I don't know what it is. I can't explain it. I I think I've always had good sound mm. there. I just love the, the look of the place. The f- mm. But it just feels, that, you know, I want to wax lyrical when I go in the Apollo because I can just feel, you know, past gigs and, and artists here. It's well, a, yeah, it's a I do place. get that feeling with Chatham. Uh, there's a theatre in Chatham oh, right. that I've, I've got that because it was where Ziggy Stardust, he you know, had done a gig. And it's a small theatre in Chatham, you know, and everybody's kind of played there, but... And I can feel that, like you said, I can sense that when I'm there. And I, I enjoy every, every gig I've done there. Um, I love it in the same way. But I, I do like standing on stages that are, because I do like Zen environments. I like, I like mid-century modern architecture and I like a nice basketball court flooring at a gig. You know, they're not great for sound at all, terrible, but I like standing on them. Like there was a Kabuki theater in San Francisco that had this design, this Zen kind of design. Um, St. Albans, that was that's a great theater because it's, it's got a technical college feel about it. And I do like, um, I do like that feeling of Procter and Gamble designs where it's just, where the house feels like it's been not screwed together, but just fits together perfectly. You know, there's some joinery gone in into it. 
So I've, I've got this ideal vision of playing at a gig that's been just joined, this joinery, like a, a practicing Potter and Gamble house, like the Back to the Future house. And you know, you're in there playing on the wooden floor. And I'd, I'd love that. And everything was then in there, you know, the, you were playing cedar wood guitar, you know, everything earthy. I love the, the, the earthy environments that you see on there. I follow Dwell uh, there on Instagram and the interiors just thrill me. You know, I get really thrilled about seeing a concrete floor. <laughs> like the way they're fitted together and shelves and, you know, lovely wooden cabinets and some of the tiles that they use and the simple architecture. It's really, really pleasing. Uh, you feel good. There's an area near near us, um, like a gated community. And we cycle through it sometimes. And when you, when you go through it, you just feel nicer because everything's manicured. Uh, <laughs> I'll be honest, I didn't, expect, I didn't expect this chat about architecture with Nick Hayward, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and I like it. Yeah, I like it, it though. Yeah, I, I, I love it. I love it. <laughs> I find it thrilling. I, I, you know, I feel like songs... Um, I'm trying to incorporate that in the music as well. Uh, like when you've got logic, you start to think, okay, well, let's do something that's more mid-century modern. And, you know, don't use all the instruments you've got in here. Use some vintage synths and just create something that is just, that you like, you know, because there are certain songs that is not my, cu not my cup of tea, really, but they are, you know, like the model. You know, songs that you've just gone, you hear it now and you go, God, that's an amazing piece of work. You know, at the time, it just completely passed me by. It was just mm -hmm. there and lots of people were into it. But, you know, I remember the, the people that were into it weren't my tribe. That's the way I looked at it at that time. Yeah, that's right. So you just, it passes you by and then you'll capture it lately and you go, oh, now I know what those guys were into. I see it. I feel like going back in a time machine and saying, you, <laughs> you were ahead of your time, weren't you? Do you know what, Nick? Nick Hayward, um, I've got a piece of paper in front of me and it tells me that um, Love Plus One by Haircut 100 was the 14th best-selling UK single in 1982. Do you know what the 15th best-selling single was in 1982? No. The Model Ooh, by Kraftwerk. Wow. No way. Yeah. Wow. You pip pipped it. You beat it. <laughs> I, I know. I, funny, I, I remember thinking when when um, Love Plus One was chosen as a single, I remember thinking, really? really? I think that's why I was that's why I was saying those those cheeky little looks to the camera. And I think it was the video for Love Plus One. Is that the one by the volcano? Yes. Yeah. There was, there was a few little. Yeah. Yeah. Cheeky Hayward well, Wayward looks, eh? Hayward Wayward looks, that's it. I, can't, I do cringe, I must admit. I'd, I'd, I'd like to work on that. Oh, no, 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 it, please don't, please don't. They absolutely work well. Are they, because are they, I, I kind of like, yeah. Like, um, no, it's, it's, it's definitely the way, for, it's, it's, it's the future, Nick. Yeah? <laughs> definitely. Future, Nick. Sideways looks to the camera, definitely. <laughs> 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 it, 
is there anyone that you've not seen live yet nick that you would still love to love to see is there anyone still on your bucket list I've, i haven't seen the stones i'd like to see this you've never seen the rolling stones no. um yeah I'd, I'd like to well you know i don't i'll, I'll i won't <laughs> i know i won't <laughs> i can tell you now i'm not going to see the stones i'm just not you know but I'm, <laughs> I'd like did you to... ever subscribe to the whole stones or beetles were um, you were you one or the other I or... Was not really not really that black and white really because they're so different yeah you know and they are kind of at different times really yeah i, mean, I never be... understood it yeah it's kind of i mean i know i know um, the, the stones were a little bit, little bit later and they overlapped but i i associate the stones with the really late 70s and sorry the really late 60s and uh, kind of early to mid 70s but anyway yeah um, i mean i kind of see the stones as well as you've got the early part but then you've got angie you know that was when i really feel like the stones thank you sweetie oh good that's so good. With his yeah. mid-century design mug Mid-century there. mug, his tea mug. Is that, is, that, is that Yorkshire tea? Yeah. Oh, beautiful. It's a stork. Nick is pointing to a, 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 a beautiful painting of a stork in the background. It's a pelican. It's a what? A pelican. I'm sorry. It's not yeah. a stork. I should have known. We, we told you, listener, at the start of this podcast, that, in fact, Nick, Nick pointed out that he put a shirt and tie on. I should have known that when he stood up that he's wearing shorts. Of course Nick Hayward's wearing shorts. Shorts, <laughs> shorts, sandals, shirt and a tie. Just style icon. My God. Well, you know, I worshipped the Pelican right from the off. I, I love everything that the Pelican represents. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you, I this, this, is, this is so random and this has nothing to do with our podcast. But I remember, I remember watching Jurassic Park, and after the whole kind of the, the whole film had had gone on, and and you know the people had died, people had died on that park, and <laughs> and the film the film finished with with the with the T Rex and the flag, you know the banner, and then they 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 get the helicopter out, and these um, pelicans fly across, and I thought, oh my, and at that point I thought. What are these dinosaurs? And it just made, and it made yeah. me think, my God, you know, they they are related to birds. Yeah. Um, anyway, that is all. That's all I'm they saying. Are. They are, um, they are prehistoric, aren't they? When you see them, we we, we see them around here all the time, and yeah. I get I get a thrill, still by just looking yeah. at how prehistoric they are, how low flying. They're like pterodactyls. Yeah, yeah. Is, You're listening you still... to the Gig Stories podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I'm I'm loving this. Right, we need to we we are gonna, we're going to crack on with our 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 last question actually, um, Mr. Nick Hayward. Oh, um, sad. So, um, we always ask our guests to recommend either a, a live track, a live album, or maybe just a live performance that we can look at on on youtube or that's on the internet somewhere have you got anything that you could recommend to us that we check out well it is funny because i 
I haven't been able to look at my live performances um, because there's the Windsor Art Centre might pop up. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, there are some really good recordings. There was one of the Beardy Man Festival playing an extended favourite shirt, so that was pretty good. But I still think the the uh, doing Caravan and Sounds from the Street, um, I think it was Caravan, yeah, it was. Um, that was probably around about 97, 98. But yeah, I do a jam cover of Sounds the Street and it was on TV um, in bed with my dinner. Remember that? Yes, with, with Bob Mills. Yeah. And uh, the two performances there are still online. And I must say, uh, I'm pretty impressed with them myself. It's like, wow. And, you know, there wasn't a full full band at that time because I just come back from America touring. And so I was really kind of on it, you know. And um, when I did that, that TV and it was just, it was that moment where you're just doing it really well. You've got a bit of confidence behind you and, and stuff. And, and uh, they're you know, looking back now, they're really good. They've got loads of energy in the performances. So those, those two, I'd say, they're really good. Chris, I don't think I've ever asked you your favourite live album. Oh, my God. Because um... in episode one, Nick, I, I chose where Chris and I just introduce ourselves uh, in the podcast. I chose um, a live album by Jeff Buckley, mm. which was a compilation of uh, live performances by Jeff Buckley. I just love hearing his voice and musicianship live. So what would yours be, Chris? So uh, thank you for giving me that time to think. Um, yeah. I um, in 1990 I went to the Glasgow Royal Concert Hall and I've, I've spoken about this on a couple of episodes before but I went to see Dizzy Gillespie and the United Nations big band wow. and wow. he was playing with just the most incredible um, Cuban musicians as well as American musicians there was um, a saxophonist called James Moody who was playing with him and a trumpeter called Arturo Sandoval, who could hit these notes that would make dogs go, what? Um, and Flora Purim was singing, and there was, wow. yeah, just a ridiculous amount of um, amazing, amazing musicians. Yeah. And then the following week, they recorded that concert at the Festival Hall in London. So it's kind of the, the gig that I saw in Glasgow so have I think you got a copy of it yeah 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 um, so I think it would probably be that one I reckon I like it it's back to you Mr Hayward How oh, can you I, was, <clears throat> I wasn't thinking you thought you'd got away with it didn't you <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose the one that really really did that that moment was was seeing XTC yeah. what's your favourite XTC track Radio's Emotion or science fiction. I never thought it was. I, sorry, I was saying, radios in motion. I can see the ocean. I, you know, I for all those years, I never knew what that was until I saw. I was watching from the uh, Rock Goes to College gig, and that's when right. you can hear the intonation in the lyric. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, you know, with Andy Partridge and with the way 
John Leckie had mixed everything. It was, you know, just really was emotion. I can see the on. You know, you never actually really knew what the lyrics were, and I never like, looked them up. So if there it was, just going, I can see the ocean. I never knew that. What a, what a brilliant line. <laughs> what an absolutely brilliant line. Radio's in motion, I can see the ocean. And I wouldn't have not seen... Yeah, so The Rock Goes to College, is, you know, I think that's on YouTube. Every episode has uh, its own page on our website, so all the various things that we've talked about tonight we're going to pop on your episode page and so there'll be links to um you know various bits and bobs we'll do a little playlist for for you and all that kind of stuff so um listen nick hayward thank you very much for an amazing episode thank you thank you this has been absolute joy and pleasure i i can't wait till we're right out of this lockdown and that you you come back over to Britain and um, Chris and I are going to be at the front of the, the, the Nick Haywood mosh pit. Yeah, well, I'm going to hopefully make it a really nice mid-century modern mosh pit. <laughs> Forget that. We're, we're going to find you one in Manchester. We're going to find you one in Manchester and we're going to put on Nick Haywood in Manchester. We're we'll get some, to... get some cork flooring. Cork flooring yeah. throughout. Cork oh, oh, flooring? <laughs> Cork, cork. Cork, ah, right. Yeah, cork flooring. Okay. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> Family show. What a way to end. Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining oh, us. Yeah. And we'll, we definitely need to have you back on again. Thank you. I'd love to. Nick Hayward, everyone. What a gentleman. Oh. In, in fact, a gentleman. Oh, totally. I mean, he just was so shy or embarrassed when trying to give him any kind of compliment. And, oh, just wanted to hug him. And the irony is, is that we were on, on, on that call for two hours and it could easily have been four hours or yeah. five um he just had so much to say in a lovely way just so chatty so fun oh and and let's just point out that horrific gig of his with the um uh, that was just full of hindus and uh, oh my god i can't imagine what that must have been like when they thought they were booking the full band and it was yeah. just nick on his and own it was nick Haywood, like acoustic evening and they think they're there for the whole band shebang. Poor yeah. man. Yeah. Oh, poor, poor fella. What a nightmare. Well, what a nightmare. What, what a, a lovely, lovely guest. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Hope you enjoyed. He's um, someone that I would love to catch up with if uh, he gets back over to the country soon for a live gig. That would be great to go and see him and, and have one of our little gig stories catch-ups. Uh, which could could be an episode, hey? Go on. We go with previous guests, have a little catch-up, and just have a little 10-minute episode and so that we can just update the listener on what they're doing. And I think uh, I think that would be ace. Like like Grand Designs? 
like when they go back maybe a year later you'd yes. say oh, i like what you've done with that porch oh he's painted that porch hasn't he yeah i love it yeah i like that idea okay cool so this past week it'd be rude of us to not mention james holt whom we love dearly fabulous singer songwriter from bolton and writer of our wonderful theme tune gig stories podcast it is wicked i absolutely love it he's got new music out he's got a new single make my day so put it in your ears have a listen and it is typically james holt yeah just i'm not sure anyone out there at the moment can write a song like he does it's just so melodic and so sort of fragile but really uh, really happy at the same time he's got a, he's got a real knack james i just uh, i love him and if all you've heard of James Holt is our theme tune, well, go and check him out because you'll be surprised and he's fabulous. We love him, don't we? Check him out. Any other business? AOB, Alex Winters. AOB, ladies, gentlemen, friends, countrymen, is we are on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gig Stories Pod, and you can email us as well at info at gigstoriespodcast.com. I'm going to be honest, I'd forgotten that email address in that moment. Yeah, I had to reach I had to reach for that. That was a good reach, I'll be honest, because yeah. it sounds like it's been a while. Please get in touch with us. We love it when you interact with us and send us your guest suggestions and also your pictures of various things. Now, I do just have to address something in case some people say, whoa, 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 what's happened here? I don't have much of an update for you with regards to my trip to Cardiff. Oh. Well, my update being, I don't have the scrapbook uh, as yet. Oh, there's a, well, there's a chink of light there, is there? M- maybe, maybe. Okay. I spent a lot of time going through boxes in the attic and... I think it's still too soon for me to rage at my father as he uh, passed so recently. But he was, he did have a penchant for throwing other people's stuff out, but hoarding all his own. Um, and I know my mum doesn't listen to this podcast, but she'd literally be shouting amen and clapping and cheering because it used to wind her up. He'd just get rid of stuff without asking her, but never his own. So I'm a little worried, as is my mum, that uh, he may have gotten rid of a few boxes of mine, along with my brother. And dare I mention... Sorry, he got rid of your oh, brother? Yeah, yeah, he's gone. Wow. Gadge, Gadge is gone. Well, Gadge, yes. I mean, I suppose he was taking up quite a bit of space. He is. He's a big man. That he's a big lad. He is a big lad. He's a big bugger for his mother. <laughs> <laughs> the worst being... A massive scaletric set that apparently gave away. So, yeah, so a bit of controversy, guys. So uh, I'm I'm not going to shed tears yet, but they are (laughs) close at hand. Let me tell you, in the post. So, so I'm hoping uh, when I get back down there soon, I'll have more time, and I don't know if there is a god. He will just deliver it to me on a lovely velvet pillow and go, ah, here it is. And if you don't 
find your tickets, then the next best thing, an Excel spreadsheet. Yay! Yay! <laughs> I have thought about what I would do, which is cry for days. But I think what I would try and do is track down people's pictures of the ticket stubs, but it's got to be the ones that I was at. Okay. Now that's big, and maybe this should be a documentary for the BBC. Well, I was going to say you could you could probably get an Arts Council grant for that. <laughs> Satire, comedy. Oh, yeah, like absolutely. Bit of like politics. It. I like it. So we'll see. Fingers crossed, guys. Anyway, we love you lots, and we've still got loads of guests lined up. We've got some in the bank, haven't we? Quite a few. Oh, yeah, we've got guests in the bank and some exciting ones coming up. We really appreciate you listening and please spread the word and please give us a lovely review on uh, whatever app you're listening to because it just helps us um, be put out there. It's not because we want you to love and adore us. It is a bit, uh, but it just helps our place in and helps people find it. So please give us lovely reviews and tell all your family and friends and tell your Nana to listen to us. Thank you. And please. And thank you. Not the Matt Fraser one. Your Nana wouldn't like the Matt Fraser one. <laughs> yeah. Do not let your Nan listen to Matt Fraser's one. No. Start with Andy Day, <laughs> then That's working, it. then working to Dennis Lawson, and you you'll be fine. Andy Day is like the gateway drug into the podcast. It's often been said that. Often been said. <laughs> <laughs> so we shall see you very soon on the Kick Stories podcast. It's bye for me. And it's bye from me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.